Chapter 1, Part 2 of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Herskovitz Nagami. The Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter 1 The Path to Power, Part 2. Strasser and Goebbels speak of socialism. In the same period, and this is typical of the double-faced unscrupulous propaganda of the National Socialists, Gregor Strasser, one of Hitler's lieutenants, toured through North and East Germany with socialist slogans of the German Revolution. At that time also, Josef Goebbels comes on the stage. He was a young Catholic writer from the Rhineland, in October 1925, Strasser started the National Socialist Correspondence, which became, as it were, the theoretical organ of the left National Socialists. Goebbels, at first editor of this journal, then went in 1926 to Berlin as district leader. Up to then, the movement had made little headway there. From July 1927, he published a weekly called De Angriff, with the pseudo-socialist mottos, for the oppressed, against the exploiters. Gregor Strasser, with his brother Otto, formerly a social democrat, started a small press in Berlin, the Kampfverlag. It produced three daily papers, the Nationaler Sozialist, NS, in Berlin, the Märkische Beobachter, for the Brandenburg province, and the Seixtiger Beobachter, at that time, these were the only Nazi daily newspapers in central and northern Germany. The Kampfverlag also published three weekly papers and a number of books and pamphlets. There is no doubt that at that period Gregor Strasser attempted to rival Hitler in North Germany. He had certain differences with Hitler and only made these up later. But he continued to carry out an independent policy— and eventually, at the end of 1932, Hitler relieved him of his functions when he had become too closely associated with General Schleicher. In all the publications of the Kampfverlag, a very radical tone was used, which was intended to make the reader believe that he was being spoken to by a friend of the workers and even a class fighter. National or International Socialism, a pamphlet published by the Kampfverlag, asserted that the National Socialist Party is the class party of creative labor. The author of this pamphlet was Jung, first president of the Austrian Nazis. Gregor Strasser's motto was freedom and bread, and his trademark is a hammer and sword. Goebbels uses the same tactics in his pamphlet, The Nazi Zozi, Questions and Answers for Nationalists. There can surely be nothing more hypocritical than a fat, well-fed capitalist who protests against the proletarian idea of class struggle, who gave you the right to throw out your chest, swollen with national responsibility, in indignation against the class struggle of the proletariat. Has not the capitalist state for some sixty years been an organized class state, which brought with it as an inevitable historical necessity the proletarian idea of class struggle? 
are you not ashamed you well-fed central european to fight the class fight against underfed hollow-eyed hungry workless proletarians yes we call ourselves the worker state this is the first step the first step away from the capitalist state we call ourselves a labor party because we want to set labor free because to us creative labor is the progressive element in history because labor means more to us than property education rank and bourgeois origin this is why we call ourselves a labor party we call ourselves socialist as a protest against the lie of capitalist social compassion we want no compassion we want no social outlook we despise the rubbish which you call social legislation it is too little to live with and too much to die with we demand a full share of what heaven gave us and what we create with our hands and our brains that is socialism we protest against the idea of the class struggle our whole movement is one great protest against the class struggle but at the same time we call things by their right names if on one side seventeen million proletarians see their only salvation in the class struggle this is because from the right side they have been taught this in practice for sixty years how can we find any moral justification in fighting against the class struggle unless the capitalist class state is first absolutely torn in shreds and abolished through a new socialist organization of the german people these words were written not so very long ago by the man who later became reich minister for enlightenment and propaganda it is quite a different tone from that used in the twenty-five points in which the word socialism does not occur compare goebbels demand for the tearing in shreds of the capitalist class state with the official organ of the nazi party which in point twenty-five says for the carrying through of the above the whole program we demand the creation of a strong central power in the reich the absolute authority of the central political parliament over the whole reich and all its organizations the formation of chambers of trades and professions for the carrying through in the separate states of the reich of the general measures laid down by the reich by the side of the policy as put forward by goebbels the hitler program of nineteen twenty seems colorless conventional philistine and liberal goebbels manifesto against the fat well-fed capitalist provides a fascist program which is much more suitable for industrial areas than the twenty-five points of hitler new defeats in nineteen twenty eight nevertheless neither hitler with his lectures to the well-fed capitalists of the rhineland and the ruhr nor strasse and goebbels with their demagogy could succeed in extending the mass influence of the national socialist party it is true that a certain internal consolidation of the party took place during this period the membership rose from seventeen thousand in nineteen twenty six to forty thousand in nineteen twenty seven two congresses were held weimar in nineteen twenty six and nuremberg in nineteen twenty seven the storm detachments were re-established the party got rid of well-meaning but for that reason all the more dangerous fools the racial specialist dinter in thuringia was among those expelled moreover in order to make the party presentable in drawing-rooms the infamous murderer highness was expelled 
although his bloody record did not prevent Hitler from taking him back again later and appointing him police president of Breslau and head of the storm detachments of the whole of North and East Germany. In May 1928, the National Socialist Party again suffered a heavy defeat at the polls, securing only 12 seats in the Reichstag. The objective situation for the growth of the fascist movement had not yet developed. The years 1924 to 1927 had brought a certain restoration of Germany's economic life, and this had resulted in easier conditions for the middle class generally and also for some sections of the working class. The Economic Crisis in Germany The illusory economic prosperity, however, reached its zenith. Germany was the first European country to be affected by the developing world crisis, Production fell and unemployment rose. In the winter of 1930, there were already over three million unemployed in Germany. The employers began a general attack on wages. According to estimates made by the Berlin Finanzpolitische Korrespondenz, the average weekly wages of industrial workers fell as follows. In the summer of 1929, they were 44.60 Reichmarks. In March 1930, 39.05 Reichmarks. The average weekly wage throughout the year, which in 1928 and 1929 was 42 and 45 marks, fell to 37 marks in 1930 and 30 marks in 1931. Under the Papenschleicher government, the average weekly wage was reduced to 50% of what it had been in 1928 and 1929, it fell to 20.80 marks in August 1932, and since then it has fallen still further. The Finanzpolitische Korrespondenz estimates the total wage reductions of workers and employees in Germany from July 1929 to July 1932 at approximately 38 billion marks, at par about 1,900,000,000 pounds. Together with the wage and salary reductions, there was also a tremendous rise in unemployment. According to the official figures of the Reich Ministry of Labor, unemployment rose to over 6 million. The official Trade Research Institute, however, showed that these official figures were not comprehensive, as they covered only those workers who were reporting at the labor exchanges, that in addition to the visible unemployed, there were also many invisible. On the basis of the health insurance statistics which cover all employed persons, the invisible unemployment amounted to approximately two millions. While, therefore, the Ministry of Labor figures showed close on six million unemployed in the winter of 1931-32 to and five million in the summer of 1932, the Institute estimated the figures at 8 million in the winter of 1931 and 32, and over 7 million in the third quarter of 1932, the best season. But even these figures did not accurately reflect the position. They did not include the hundreds of thousands of persons who had been unemployed for several years and were walking the streets of the towns as beggars or wandering through Germany as tramps, nor did they include the destitute children and the young unemployed who could find no work when they left school. They did not include the hundreds of thousands of small merchants and tradespeople, of people who had formerly been independent 
and professional people who were living on the verge of starvation and were in fact unemployed. The real number of unemployed at the end of 1932 must be put at somewhere around about 9 million. The position of the middle class was increasingly getting worse. The specific weight of this section of the population in Germany is considerable. According to a statistical inquiry made by Theodor Geiger, Die Soziale Schichtung des Deutschen Volkes, Stuttgart, 1932, the percentage proportion of the various classes in the total number of occupied persons is capitalists, 0.84%, old middle class, small proprietors, 18.33%, new middle class, officials, employees, etc., 16.04%, proletaroids, workers on own account, small traders, etc., 13.76%, proletariat, 51.03%. The proportion of the proletariat may be put too high, but the general distribution is probably correct. The crisis brought wide sections of the middle class down into the proletariat. The number of bankruptcies rose, compulsory sales became more and more frequent. The small tradespeople of the towns and the small peasants were particularly severely hit, and the crisis hit sections of people who had hitherto not been affected, and whose position had improved during the preceding period of relative stabilization. Unemployment began to creep into the most privileged sections of intellectual workers. The standard of living of teachers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, writers, artists, fell lower and lower. A quarter of the university lecturers could find no posts. Of 8,000 graduates from the technical colleges and universities in 1931-32, to only 1,000 found employment in their professions. 1,500 continued their studies provisionally, suffering great privation. 1,500 found temporary work as street hawkers, waiters, etc., but 4,000 remained totally unemployed. An investigation undertaken by the Hartmannbund, the officially recognized Doctors' Association, showed that in 1932, 70% of the German medical profession were earning less than 170 marks a month, at par, 8 pounds, 10 shillings, 0 pence. The German Legal Association found that its members were in much the same position. According to a statement issued by the Prussian Minister of Education, of 22,000 teachers who completed their training in the previous year, only 990 found posts, and even these were only temporary and auxiliary teaching posts and these figures cover Prussia only. The number of unemployed engineers and chemists increased five times between April 1930 and April 1932, while unemployment among technical staffs doubled and among all employees rose by one and a half times during the same period. The position of those university lecturers who were still employed got worse from year to year. Hours were lengthened, Salaries were rigorously cut. In addition, there was an increase in short-time working. Many industries worked only three to five days a week. The immense burden of reparations sharpened the crisis. The promises and hopes of the Dawes plans and the Locarno Treaty were not fulfilled. The Young Plan of 1929 made a new regulation of debts, which brought fresh opportunities for the German capitalists to transfer the burden to the workers. 
a new wave of radicalization passed through the workers. After the electoral success of the Social Democrats in May 1928, the working class began again to turn toward the Communist Party. Sections of the middle class, which had hitherto been indifferent to politics, now began to become active. The peasants were roused. In North Germany in 1929, they were in a state of revolt, resisting by force the bailiffs sent to rob them of their last cow. There were conflicts with the police. Then came one bomb attack after another. In Schleswig-Holstein, attempts were made to blow up government offices. In 1928, a great coalition government was formed, reaching from the German People's Party, the party of heavy industry, to the Social Democrats. Hermann Müller, president of the Social Democratic Party, became chancellor. In addition to him, there were three Social Democrats in the government, Severing, minister of the interior, Hilferding, minister of finance, and Winnell, minister of labor. Stresemann, leader of the German People's Party, became foreign minister. His friend, Dr. Curtius, minister of economics, and the Democrat Gessler, now a fascist, minister of the Reichswehr. It was under Müller's government that the Young Plan was put through. The chief delegate at the Paris Young Plan conference was Schacht, president of the Reichsbank, who was removed from his post in 1930 and restored to it again in 1933 as a follower of Hitler. The Brunning Period in December 1929, Hilferding was removed from the government, and his place as finance minister was taken by Professor Moldenhauer, a member of the board of control of the great German chemical trust, the IG Farbenindustrie. A few months later, in March 1930, the Müller cabinet was replaced by the Brunning cabinet. The Social Democratic Party was maneuvered out of the government. Nevertheless, the brunning grüner stegerwald government, which did not have a majority in the Reichstag, was willingly supported and tolerated by the Social Democrats. At the same time, this government was already thinking of bringing in the National Socialists. In the Gericke trial in June 1933, the former minister Treveranus explicitly stated that at that time Brunning had the intention of bringing in the Nazis. The Social Democrats represented to the workers that the Brunning government was a lesser evil than a government which was purely fascist and capitalist. The Social Democratic Prussian government of Braun and Zebering firmly supported the Brunning government of the Reich. The period of democracy came to an end amid the difficulties which the economic crisis brought to Germany's financial, industrial, and agrarian capitalists. Brunning ruled Germany with Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which in fact suspends the Constitution. But it was not the first time that the rulers of the German Republic had had to correct a political development, which was beginning to get dangerous, by the introduction of the state of siege and the suspension of democratic rights. During the years 1919 to 1923, when the Social Democrat Ebert was president of the Reich, Article 48 made it possible to prohibit strikes in so-called vital industries, to organize strike-breaking corps for technical assistance in emergencies, to send the Reichswehr to Saxony and Thuringia in 1923, 
to restore constitutional conditions and to appoint General von Zecht as military dictator for the prohibition of the German Communist Party. Zürgibel, the Social Democratic Police President of Berlin and a former trade union leader, prohibited the working-class demonstrations of May 1, 1929, and when the workers broke through this prohibition and demonstrated, he sent police against them, killing 33 Berlin workers. A few days later, Zevering prohibited the Red Front organization, which was the anti-fascist defense organization of the revolutionary workers, while in Prussia, the Nazis were allowed to continue legally building up their fighting organizations. The Reichstag was sidetracked by Brüning. The Social Democrats gave their consent to this, and Brüning ruled with emergency decrees on the basis of Article 48 of the Constitution. He decreed the reduction of unemployment payments, the lowering of the miserable pensions of the victims of the war, of the sick, of old people, widows, and orphans. He decreed new taxes on the masses, the poll tax, the crisis tax, the bachelor's tax. He decreed increases in import duties and thereby increases in the price of food. He put an end to the rent protection legislation. Banks and industrial concerns received millions in subsidies. The great landlords were able to put themselves right at the expense of their workers. They received millions out of the so-called aid for the East. And the police presidents, of whom more than half were members of the Social Democratic Party, put down with intense severity the defensive movements of the workers, prohibited the communist press, and forbade working-class demonstrations. Through this policy, the Social Democrats not only actually helped forward the development of the reactionary and fascist forces in Germany, but also gave the National Socialists the pretext for their demagogic campaign against the failure of the Marxist system. The Social Democrats tolerated the Brüning government, which increased the burdens of the workers until they became intolerable, and ruled by dictatorial methods preparing the way for the summoning of the National Socialists to government power. During this period, the second revival of the National Socialist Party began. Together with Ugenberg, the spokesman of the reactionary wing of German heavy industry and of the landlords, with the support of the Stahlhelm and other nationalist organizations, the National Socialists demanded a referendum against the Young Plan. It was conveniently forgotten that in 1925, Ugenberg's German National People's Party had set aside one half of their fraction in the Reichstag to help to secure the acceptance of the Dawes Plan. The gigantic propaganda apparatus of the Ugenberg concern, with its hundreds of newspapers and its telegraph agency, the Telegraphen Union, TU, was now at the service of the National Socialists. The referendum came to nothing, but the National Socialists could record definite successes in the elections for the Diets of Saxony and Thuringia and in the Prussian local elections. In 1930, Frick became Minister of the Interior and of Education in Thuringia, the first National Socialist minister in Germany. In Thuringia, they joined a coalition with all the parties of the right, including the German People's Party, which at that time was in the Reich coalition with the Social Democrats. 
Only a year earlier, Goebbels, in his small ABC of National Socialism, had called the German People's Party a representative of the interests of big capital. Hitler shows his true colors. One section of the socialists in the Nazi party under the leadership of Otto Stasser considered that they could no longer follow the legal tactics then used, and in May 1930 left the party under the slogan, The Socialists Leave the National Socialist Party. Before this, Strasser had a long discussion with Hitler who told him, The great mass of the workers wants nothing more than bread and circuses, it has no comprehension of any ideals, and we shall never be able to count on ideals to win the workers in large numbers. We want a selection from the new master class, who are not guided, as you are, by a morality of sympathy. Strasser asked Hitler, If you took power tomorrow, what would you do the day after, for example, with the Krupp concern? Will everything remain just as it is now for the shareholders and the workers in regard to ownership, profits, and management? Hitler replied, But of course. Do you imagine I am so crazy as to destroy trade? The state would only step in when people were not acting in the interests of the nation, but for this no expropriation is necessary, nor any joint share in control, but the power of the strong state which alone is in the position to let itself be governed entirely by wide viewpoints without consideration of individuals. The expression socialism is in itself bad, but above all it does not mean that these concerns must be socialized, but only that they can be socialized if they conflict with the interests of the nation. So long as they do not do this, it would be simply a crime to interfere with trade. In this connection, we have a precedent which we can adopt without further question, namely, Italian fascism. Just as the fascists have already put this into effect, in our national socialist state, also employers and workers will stand alongside each other with equal rights, while the decision in disputes is left to the state, which takes care that economic struggles do not endanger the life of the nation. With this guarantee to the capitalist economic system, Hitler once again recommended himself to the ruling groups of German finance capital. He showed them that, as in the case of the Italian fascist program, so the nationalist economic program only aimed at guaranteeing the reconsolidation of capitalism. He has kept the promises which he then gave. The Reichstag elections of September 1930 gave the National Socialists their first great electoral success. They secured 6,400,000 votes and 107 seats, becoming the second-strongest party after the Social Democrats. The Communists won 600,000 votes. The German Nationalist Party lost half their seats. The German People's Party won third. The National Socialists owed their success to propaganda aimed at winning the radicalized middle-class elements. This propaganda offered unlimited promises to all sections, and it was conducted with gigantic resources supplied by capitalist donors. The Nazis promised the workers higher wages, the employers higher profits, the tenants lower rents, the house owners higher rents, the peasants higher prices, the middle class cheaper food, but they did not succeed in effecting any real penetration of the working class. They merely attracted large sections of former voters for the capitalist parties. Should Hitler be Chancellor of the Reich? 
Browning continued in office and issued new emergency decrees. The Social Democrats supported him in carrying through this policy, and with the growth of the National Socialist Party, the question of openly calling it to power became more and more frequently raised. In April of 1932, Hindenburg was elected a second time as President of the Reich, with the votes of the Social Democrats, who issued the slogan, A vote for Hindenburg is a blow at Hitler. In May 1932, at the instigation of the East Prussian Junkers, Chancellor Brüning was overthrown, and a Papenschleicher government took his place. The new government started to bring in even more severe dictatorial measures. On July 20, 1932, Papen was appointed Reich Commissioner for Prussia. A captain with three soldiers of the Reichswehr sufficed to break the resistance of the Social Democratic Ministers of Prussia. For a short time, martial law was in force in the Berlin-Brandenburg area. The Social Democratic leaders offered no resistance, although they still had under their control the whole of the police in Prussia and in several of the other states of the Reich, and although the Social Democrat police officers were urging armed resistance. On the contrary, the Social Democrat leaders denounced the Communists, who were calling on the workers for a general strike as provocateurs. They weakened the working class forces and abandoned their positions in order to be able, as they thought, to save at least something from the wreck, and so the Prussian home of democracy fell into the hands of the reactionaries without a struggle. In August 1932, after a second electoral success for the Nazis, 13.5 million votes and 225 seats in the Reichstag, the appointment of Hitler as Chancellor began to be discussed. Hindenburg still hesitated, but the demand for Hitler's appointment grew more insistent. The Deutsche Führerbriefe, a private bulletin of the Union of German Industry, published an article which disclosed the plans of the dominant capitalist groups under the title The Social Reconsolidation of Capitalism. It contained the following passages. The problem of consolidating the capitalist regime in post-war Germany is governed by the fact that the leading section, that is, the capitalist controlling industry, has become too small to maintain its rule alone. Unless recourse is to be had to the extremely dangerous weapon of purely military force, it is necessary for it to link itself with sections which do not belong to it from a social standpoint, but which can render it the essential service of anchoring its rule among the people, and thereby becoming its especial or last defender. This last or outermost defender of bourgeois rule in the first period after the war was social democracy. National socialism has to succeed social democracy in providing a mass support for capitalist rule in Germany. Social democracy had a special qualification for this task, which up to the present National Socialism lacks. Thanks to its character as the original party of the workers, social democracy, in addition to its purely political force, also had the much more valuable and permanent advantage of control over organized labor, and by paralyzing its revolutionary energies, chained it firmly to the capitalist state. In the first period of reconsolidation of the capitalist regime after the war, 
the working class was divided by the wages victories and social-political measures through which the social democrats canalized the revolutionary movement the deflection of the revolution into social-political measures corresponded with the transference of the struggle from the factories and the streets into parliament and cabinets that is with the transformation of the struggle from below into concessions from above from then onwards therefore the social democratic and trade union bureaucracy and with them also the section of the workers whom they led were closely tied to the capitalist state and participation in its administration at least so long as there was anything left of their post-war victories to defend by these means and so long as the workers followed their leadership this analysis leads to four important conclusions one the policy of the lesser evil is not merely tactical it is the political essence of social democracy two the cords which bind the trade union bureaucracy to the state method from above are more compelling than those which bind them to marxism and therefore to social democracy and this holds in relation to the bourgeois state which wants to draw in this bureaucracy three the links between the trade union bureaucracy and social democracy stand or fall from a political standpoint with parliamentarianism four the possibility of a liberal social policy for monopoly capitalism is conditioned by the existence of an automatic mechanism for the creation of divisions in the working class a capitalist regime which adopts a liberal social policy must not only be entirely parliamentary it must also be based on social democracy and must allow social democracy to have sufficient gains to record a capitalist regime which puts an end to these gains must also sacrifice parliamentarism and social democracy must create a substitute for social democracy and pass over to a social policy of constraint the process of this transition in which we are at the moment for the reason that the economic crisis has perforce blotted out the gains referred to has to pass through the acutely dangerous stage when with the wiping out of these gains the mechanism for the creation of divisions in the working class which depended on them also ceases to function the working class moves in the direction of communism and the capitalist rule approaches the emergency stage of military dictatorship the only safeguard from this acute stage is if the division and holding back of the working class which the former mechanism can no longer adequately maintain is carried out by other and more direct methods in this lies the positive opportunities and tasks of national socialism if national socialism succeeds in bringing the trade unions into a social policy of constraint as social democracy formerly succeeded in bringing them into a liberal policy then national socialism would become the bearer of one of the functions essential to the future of capitalist rule and must necessarily find its place in the state and social system the danger of a state capitalist or even socialist development which is often urged against such as incorporation of the trade unions under national socialist leadership will in effect be avoided precisely by these means there is no third course 
between a reconsolidation of capitalist rule and the communist revolution. These paragraphs give the key to an understanding of the political situation. The Poppenschleicher period. The Poppenschleicher government was a further stage on the road to a Hitler dictatorship. Its emergency decrees were models for Hitler to follow. The death penalty for high treason, the death penalty for political acts of violence, the establishment of emergency courts which imposed long sentences of imprisonment for minor offenses, but this government of big capitalists, Junkers and generals, had no mass following. The Stahlhelm and the German National People's Party were entirely inadequate. Poppin's much-advertised economic program of September 1932 laid new burdens on the workers and gave new millions to the rich. Powerful anti-fascist demonstrations under the leadership of the Communist Party, which was carrying on the only serious extra-parliamentary fight against fascism, were broken up. These reached their highest point in the Berlin traffic strike of November 1932, which demonstrated the helplessness of the government in face of the determination of the workers. At this period, too, National Socialism was passing through a serious crisis. In the November elections, it lost almost two million votes. The total vote for the Communist Party reached six millions. At the end of November, Poppen fell and Schleicher succeeded him early in December. Behind the scenes, negotiations were carried on in one direction with the trade unions and also with a view to the drawing in of Hitler. No government can sit on bayonets. Schleicher hesitated, did nothing, and merely modified some of Poppen's emergency decrees. On January 22nd, the National Socialists staged a provocative demonstration in front of the Communist Party headquarters, the Karl Liebknecht House. General Schleicher sent the whole police force to protect the Nazis from the workers' counter-demonstrations. The situation grew more and more acute. General Schleicher was considering the immediate proclamation of a military dictatorship. Poppen worked against Schleicher's plan by negotiating with Hitler and Hugenberg. At last, the ruling groups of Germany, as the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung put it, tried a leap in the dark. On January 30, 1933, Hindenburg, the candidate for the presidency, who had been supported by the Social Democrats, appointed Hitler Chancellor of the German Reich. End of chapter 1, part 2.